From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Identifying and saving historic places that are considered endangered in Colorado, and how the idea of preservation is evolving. We used to focus a lot in the preservation world on the you know great, fabulous landmarks, rich and famous. But there's an awareness now that the ordinary vernacular landscapes and buildings have important stories to tell, too particularly if they're part of broader social movements. Then reports of child abuse and neglect are down in Colorado, but during a pandemic, what does that really mean? We'll talk about ways to support children in a world of isolation. Plus, science moms have a message for their kids about climate change. I want you to know that I worked really hard to be a part of the change and to make it a better place for you. The largest source of support for Colorado Public Radio comes from members across our state. I'm from Denver, Aurora, Glenwood Springs, Grand Junction, Boulder, Pilots Ranch. With your donation, you connect your city to nonprofit journalism, to inspiring stories, and you connect your community to a wide range of music that fills our daily life. These recent months have been tough for everyone, but month after month, donors continue to step up. Thank you for your support. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Avery Lill. Today, the number of places considered endangered in Colorado grows by three to 130. And they touch on completely different moments in state history. But at the same time, two places that used to be threatened now have been saved. Let's get into what all that means with Kim Grant. He's the director of Colorado's Most Endangered Places program, a part of Colorado Preservation, Inc. Hi, Kim. Hi, Avery. Thanks for having me. What makes a place endangered? Historic sites are threatened by a lot of different things that put them in danger. They could range from uh, development pressures on the front range to abandonment and neglect, um, economic decline in rural areas, or even weatherization and the freeze-thaw cycle up in the mountains. And how do you decide what places are truly the most endangered in Colorado? We try to keep an eye on sites that uh, where their status changes and we you know, wonder about what's going on with them. But we actually have a formal nomination process. It's very grassroots and anyone can nominate a site. And then a reviewer is signed to each site and they go out and carry out a review and interview the nominator and the stakeholders and people in the community And then it goes through a three-stage review process by region and eventually goes to a statewide meeting we call Big Monday, where we get together and we hash out all of these sites and we try to make the really difficult decisions about which sites to list each year. And I'm curious, when you think about that decision, what are the pressures on you? Is there a money pressure? Is there a pressure of deciding which places are most important? What do you have to weigh? Well, we have to weigh the relative significance of the sites, and we also consider the geographic distribution of them, because we like to have a broad representation of sites and resources. We also consider things like the diversity of sites and the different stories behind them about uh, different ethnic groups and uh, events in Colorado. And we look at 
the potential for partnerships in the communities um, and the degree of support that exists for saving these places. And we kind of weigh all of those factors. How important is community involvement or community support in that process? Community support is really important because, you know, it's hard to save a site if the property owner doesn't want to see it saved or if the community doesn't care about it, if it's not important to them. And also when you're building public support, People have powerful connections to these places, and their personal testimony and their stories are often really compelling to getting other people involved. This year's list, it includes not one, but an entire group of bridges. I understand some of these date back to 1888. Why did bridges rise to the level of inclusion this year? Well, Colorado has a a really unique geophysical environment with mountains and streams and rivers and plains. And and by necessity, we have a lot of bridges. And those bridges also reflect the time and era in which they were built, the conditions under which they were built, and they also um, relate to the communities around them. And CDOT, in their credit, has a terrific inventory of all their bridges on their system, And they also know of about 46 of them that are eligible for the National or State Register of Historic Places. And they reached out to us, and we hope to work with them to save as many as 20 of them in place. Other states have a pretty strong bridge preservation ethic, but that really hasn't taken root in Colorado now. And we hope to do that and also build with support from local communities to saving some of these really iconic bridges. Does a place have to be designated on the National or Local Historic Registry to be considered worth saving? No, it does not. But sometimes that's a key step or an early first step, particularly uh, as a gateway to potential funding down the line. Now, another endangered place on the list predates Colorado as a state. The Lafayette Head Home and Ute Indian Agency was built in 1855, and it played an important role in the development of Colorado. How so? Well, Lafayette Head was a real interesting character. He was a soldier. He was a a businessman of a government agent, and he married into a prominent Hispano family in Santa Fe and was one of those first settlers who came north from New Mexico into the San Luis Valley and founded the town of Guadalupe, which flooded and then eventually um, moved across the river to become Conejos. Conejos was this incredible melding of cultures who often had a very uneasy coexistence. You had the uh, Anglo-European trappers and traders and settlers pouring into the area following this idea of manifest destiny. You had the um, longtime Hispano residents um, who were part of Mexico before statehood. And then, of course, you had the indigenous peoples, primarily the Ute and uh, Apache tribes. And Head positioned himself sort of in between all these groups and tried to balance the interests of, of the two and was a very prominent person who went back with the tribes to negotiate treaties in Washington, D.C. He later became the first lieutenant governor of Colorado and so on. But not a whole lot was really known about him. Um, He doesn't really show up as one of the top three or four people in Colorado that you hear about in association with statehood. But really, Colorado's history began down in this area and and not so much uh, during the Pikes Peak Gold Rush in 1859. 
And another important thing he did, he was really instrumental in helping end indigenous slavery in Colorado, right? Yes. Um, Slavery was a very common phenomenon among all of these groups, unfortunately, at the time, and had himself uh, owned slaves. And one of the things he did was to put a list together of all um, the people held in slavery in the valley and used that to help President Andrew Johnson um, push through legislation that ended indigenous slavery. The third endangered place added to this list this year is the Winter Park Balcony House. But there was disagreement about whether it's worth saving. What's the discussion there? Well, it's a mid-century modern uh, resource. And um, some folks just don't appreciate mid-century modern architecture as much. And there are pressures for redevelopment because it sits right at the base of the ski resort. And it's this amazing um, place that was really the first passive solar building before that term was even used at a ski resort. And as far as we know, it's it's probably the only mid-century modern resource at a Colorado resort. And we think uh, a win-win solution can be found to uh, rehabilitate it and adaptively reuse it and also use the area behind it to build five or six stories of additional resort amenities like condominiums and and visitor services that they need to stay competitive. There are some success stories to places that were previously endangered. One of them is an orchard in Montezuma County. Why an orchard? What makes it special and how was it preserved? An orchard is an example of a cultural landscape. And this orchard was significant because it won uh, four gold medals at the St. Louis World's Fair in 1904. And at one time, there were hundreds of small orchards in Colorado. It was just a a very common feature of the landscape. Over time, those disappeared. The industry consolidated. You know, places like Washington State sort of took over the apple industry, for example. And uh, these orchards withered on the vine and died. But some really, really farsighted people understand the role that they play in the history of Colorado, but also in the future as food resources. And there's a group called the Montezuma Orchard Restoration Project that started around this gold medal orchard. And they now work with heirloom apples and heritage orchards throughout Southern Colorado and have made great strides in accomplishing this. So this is going to be really cool to save this historic cultural landscape. Let's talk about another place that you consider saved, Goodnight Barn in Pueblo County. We actually talked about the barn on Colorado Matters in 2018 when a million-dollar makeover was planned. What is this barn, and what does it look like now? The barn was built by Charles Goodnight in around 1870, and it was the northern terminus of the Goodnight Loving Trail. He was a Texas pioneer and cattle driver, and He brought cattle up to Colorado and up to the markets in Pueblo and Denver and established this ranch. And it's built out of stone that's quarried nearby. His ranch hands did this work. It's a very large and spectacular barn. It's probably one of the most significant agricultural resources in terms of its architecture. And at one point, folks at Texas A&M University wanted to disassemble the barn and move it down to their campus down in the area where uh, Goodnight got his beginnings. And that prompted the city of Pueblo to get involved to save this thing. 
And that was clear back in 2002 or so. So sometimes it takes a long time to pull together the resources to save these sites. But the, the friends of the Goodnight Barn or the Goodnight Barn Preservation Committee have done a terrific job of plucking away at this project and finding partners and getting great contractors to work on it. And it's beautifully restored now. As you see these places that are considered endangered, has anything changed over the years? Is it just the passage of time that makes something endangered? Or is there an evolving philosophy about what's worth preserving? Um, That's a great question. And, And there is an evolving philosophy because we used to focus a lot in the preservation world on the you know great fabulous landmarks of the rich and famous but there's an awareness now that that the ordinary vernacular landscapes and buildings have important stories to tell too particularly if they're part of broader social movements or um, things that change over time or specific governmental policies like the new deal for example so we try to cast a wide net and and recognize that uh, what's historic, you know, in the future may not be considered so important now. Um, you know, in the old days when the preservation movement began, everyone was really enamored with the beautiful Victorian houses and things like that. But the buildings of the modern era were not as well appreciated, and a lot of them got demolished. And so we have to um, build a future with historic places, with an idea that. We want to save good representative examples of every era in America's history. And as you've been working on this program, what kinds of personal stories do you hear from people who are directly touched by some of these endangered places? Well, they are touched and they're powerful stories and they come out of the blue sometimes. We were filming at the Doyle School down near Pueblo one day and uh, a guy drove up on his truck and hopped out of his truck and said, I went to school here when I was in third grade and I grew up in this area. And, uh, you know, he came in and he told us all about what it was like to go to school in that one room schoolhouse. Uh, Another example is we've been working recently on the Foxton Post Office and a woman pulled up and jumped out of her truck and said her mother was the postmistress. And she just broke into tears when she came inside the place because she remembers as a little girl what it was like, you know, coming to work with her mom every day. And another example is the historic synagogue that we're working on in Trinidad, Temple Aaron. Since that project got started, we've heard from a number of people that are directly related to the original builders of that magnificent building back in the 1880s. Well, Kim, I want to thank you so much for joining us and for sharing these stories of the places that you're working to preserve. Thank you very much. Appreciate your time. Kim Grant is the director of the Colorado's Most Endangered Places program. Today, three places were added to that list and two were removed. In all, the preservation effort has saved 52 places so far and only seven have been lost. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's time to turn the page with Colorado Matters. Read a book with us, then meet the author. This time, a novel about pets. Boulder author R.L. Mazes has written Other People's Pets. Her main character is an animal empath. Somebody who could literally feel what animals feel in her body. Pick up Other People's Pets and join Colorado Matters Saturday, February 27th to meet the author. Free tickets at CPR.org slash turn the page. 
calls about possible child abuse have declined in Colorado. But during the pandemic, that doesn't necessarily mean kids are more safe. Let's talk about this concern and what can be done with Minna Castillo-Cohen. Cohen, she's the director of the Office of Children, Youth and Families in the Colorado Department of Human Services. Hi, Minna. Good morning. There was a 13% drop in calls in the Colorado Child Abuse and Neglect Hotline in 2020 compared to the year before. We actually spoke with you last May because you were concerned that the stay-at-home orders and remote learning could endanger children whose homes aren't safe. What do those new numbers suggest? Avery, you're right. When we spoke back in May, we were really concerned about kids being at home and not in school. And therefore, if they were experiencing abuse or neglect, that they would be doing so in isolation. And while we've seen a drop in the calls to the hotline, what we have not seen is a greater incidence of abuse or neglect coming uh, through to our county departments of human services. And just for some context, frequently teachers are people who would report a cases of abuse or neglect in other years. Is that right? That's correct. Our highest group of reporters of suspected abuse and neglect are our educators, those people who are in our schools and our child care settings every day with young people. And typically, more calls do come into the hotline when school starts up in the fall and increase again after spring break and after the winter holidays and just before heading into summer. So we expected a dip. And uh, we did see that dramatic decrease in calls in March, April and May as those schools suddenly shifted to remote learning. And so that is something notable that you saw that drop in reporting in March when remote learning began. Even though students were still interacting with teachers virtually and educators virtually, the calls from education professionals dropped by nearly 30 percent. So what does that indicate about remote learning and their ability to identify concerns? It's a great question. Our educators uh, know the children within their classrooms and they see those kids every day. They're trusted adults and our young people share stories with those educators, uh, early childhood educators, as well as their K-12 educators every day. And so when they're not there in person, it can be harder for an educator to really assess what might be going on in that kid's life. One of the things that we did uh, in order to um, help support our teachers was working together with several nonprofit partners and, and teachers themselves, education advocates, uh, to create a toolkit to help teachers get a better sense of what their students were going through, their emotional and their physical safety in that virtual environment and how they might be able to detect some signs of abuse or neglect in that virtual manner. And uh, that t- toolkit is available on our website for educators uh, right here in Colorado. And give us a little bit of a preview. How can you help teachers support their students virtually? Well, one of the things we would say is is that teachers have done an amazing job of being able to be uh, supportive of kids who are in home environments. Uh, The toolkit has a lot of uh, great suggestions about uh, activities that can be done. It's broken into developmentally appropriate uh, pieces of curriculum that can help a teacher really assess what might be going on in a kid's home, how they might be feeling, and again, trying to uh, determine if there's any additional supports that the school could offer. And on top of social isolation, the pandemic has put pressure on families in ways that raise the risk of child abuse and neglect. Tell me about those pressures and how they can translate into unsafe situations for kids. 
Certainly, we know that the pandemic has created stress and uncertainty for families, and it's um, still too soon, I think, to, to tell if it correlates to an increase in abuse. Uh, there's been lots of stories recently in the media about parents having to juggle both work and online school and all of the things that have come at us during this pandemic. And um, certainly that social isolation for families, uh, parents themselves, that stress um, related to financial uncertainty and, and food insecurity, and the absence of childcare and school, all of those factors increased during the pandemic. And generally speaking, more than 80% of child abuse and neglect allegations in Colorado are actually classified as neglect. So help us understand the difference there. Yeah, so that's a really um, important point to make. And typically neglect is is really uh, a lack of resources. And so what we want to be able to do is make sure that families understand that uh, when you feel like you're in need, that you can call the hotline yourself to access some resources. And that lack of resources um, that may be noticed by, again, an educator, a family member, a, a neighbor is really important Uh, to call that hotline uh, and reach out to that family, most importantly, to see what they may be able to uh, do to support them. And you say that people can call the hotline themselves or neighbors can call, but people might be hesitant to either call for themselves or report suspicions of child abuse or neglect. Can you walk us through what actually happens when someone calls that hotline with a concern? Yeah, uh, you know, one of the things that we always want to do is be able to myth bust. I think the reason people have fear about calling the hotline is because they fear that there's going to be a removal of that child. But when you call that child abuse and neglect hotline, there is a a live call taker there uh, 24-7 who can uh, ask a few questions. Uh, You don't have to know for sure if a child is experiencing abuse or neglect. That call taker can gather that information and pass it along to the county child welfare team that can do that assessment. And that assessment um, allows uh, the county child welfare team to understand and determine whether there's a need to connect the family with more in-home services, uh, or if they do need to uh, look into how they might be able to keep that child safe. And it's really important to hear that 70% of the time, kids can stay in their home with their family intact and receive those services. And protecting privacy, of course, can you share a story about a child who was helped because of a call to the state's abuse and neglect hotline? Certainly. Um, when we get calls into the hotline, we uh, sometimes hear, again, that it is really about a neglect, perhaps uh, inadequate supervision or inadequate ability to care for their children. And f- sometimes we find, again, in these cases, 80% of the time that there's been no abuse or neglect, but a family that just needs some support. So uh, an example of this is a single mom in Eagle County that we connected with recently. We did receive a call through the hotline from a concerned community member, but it did not end up that there was any safety concerns. And still, the county was able to help the family who was brand new to the area. The caseworker helped the mom who did not speak English. She helped her sign up her kids for sports, access school supplies, and help translate uh, when she needed that support while navigating other systems and services. Because that call was made to the hotline, the family was able to become much more resilient and find that stability that they needed. And that really underlines that a lot of your work actually focuses on preventing abuse and neglect. And you do that by strengthening families and connecting with them with resources. In about the 30 seconds we have left, can you give us some ideas for how you can support families, but also how maybe neighbors can support families? 
Yes, that is always the first thing that we suggest to people is to offer that help. So be a listening ear for a neighbor who may be having a difficult time. Offer to shovel for a neighbor uh, who you know has small children or um, might need that additional help. Help a parent connect to and apply for benefits. Let them know that it is okay to need help and to seek that help. We want to make sure that people are connecting to groups, both virtually uh, as well as in their community. And we really do encourage our employers to allow for flexibility in scheduling whenever that is possible. Minna, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thank you so much. Minna Castillo-Cohen is the director of the Office of Children, Youth, and Families in Colorado Department of Human Services. And Colorado Matters continues after a break. I'm Avery Lill. You're with CPR News. Hey, it's Vic Vela from CPR's podcast, Back From Broken. Last season, we told stories of life's challenges, of recovery, and hope. And you listened. Really blown away by Back From Broken. Back From Broken inspired me to... Thank you very much for your messages of recovery and hope. They mean a lot to a parent like me. So this season on Back From Broken, more stories about hope. Happiness is just like right here. You know, it's in being alive. Find Back From Broken on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. If you're a new mom or dad, it's often helpful to get advice from other parents. They're the experts on the best new car seat and how to finally get your toddler potty trained. Now there's a group of moms who want to be that expert resource on climate change. Let's talk to a couple of those moms. Melissa Burt is a research scientist in the Department of Atmospheric Science at Colorado State University. Hi, Melissa. Hi, Avery. Thanks for having me. Glad to have you here. In the same department at CSU, Emily Fisher is an atmospheric chemist and associate professor. Hi, Emily. Hi. So you are both climate researchers and you're both moms, and you're now part of this new climate science education campaign called Science Moms. Emily, tell us about this group. Why are you trying to connect other parents on climate change? Yeah, thanks for having us. Science Moms is a nonpartisan group of climate scientists and mothers who are aiming to break down climate change in simple, accurate, and often funny ways that that will arm moms with the knowledge they need to understand the issue and feel comfortable talking about it and hopefully taking action on it. And the target is moms mainly um, because moms are a group that are really concerned about climate change. And they're very likely to do something about it. And we're also moms. And so it's a natural group for us to connect to and um, talk to. You and Melissa both work at the Colorado State University and you know each other well. Emily, you encourage Melissa also to be a part of this campaign. Melissa, tell me more about how you connect climate change with your parenting and why you decided to join. Yeah, so, um, you know, one of the reasons that I wanted to team up with these these other moms and other climate scientists is because, you know, yes, we are scientists. This is something that we study on our everyday work, but, you know, we're moms first. And so for me, I really wanted to be involved because I wanted to show other moms that there's something that we can all do about this issue around climate change. And that if we collectively come together and use our voice to speak up and speak Um, towards action for climate change, then that is really the biggest thing that we can do to help solve this climate issue. So let's talk about some of the things you're doing. Oh, and did you want to go ahead and jump in, Emily? Oh, no, that's okay. Okay. Um, Ads are part of the campaign. They're playing around the internet. They're featuring the science of moms and other kids. Here's this clip from your video, Melissa, with your four-year-old daughter, Mia. 
As moms, we care about our children and the environment they grow up in. And for Mia, I want you to know that I worked really hard to be a part of the change and to make it a better place for you. These ads, they feel vulnerable. Melissa, what has it been like sharing this side of your life and your work with others? Yeah, uh, that gets me every single time I hear that um, that ad and see that ad. And, you know, I think the biggest thing for us is really connecting with people, right? Um, it, you can put yourself in a very vulnerable space by sharing so much of your life. Um, but I think that that's the beauty of this project that we really want people to know and, and to connect at their hearts and to connect with us as individuals that like, this is something that should matter to all of us, right? Um, the number one job for you as a mom is to pr protect your kid and you want the life of your kid to be the, to be better than your own life. And so, you know, just sharing that message and communicating that message at the heart, I think is something that really drives this, this initiative and really speaks, um, towards wanting to, to, to have a conversation about climate change in a very different method than has been done before. And so really connecting with people at the heart and, and to hear like my voice and to hear my daughter my daughter's laughter is just something that I think really gets people to see that this is important for, for our kids, for our kids now and for our kids in the future. We've heard from others on the show that it's not always easy to share the emotional side of climate science work. Do you feel that way, Emily? Oh, absolutely. I mean, having my video, which um, shares my two kids and, um, you know, I, I have a similar emotional tone in my video. Um, but, but as somebody who studies wildfires and their impacts, honestly, 2018 and 2020 have really rattled me to my core. And I it wouldn't be um, authentic if I didn't share the way that I feel about climate change um, from the perspective of being a mom. And you talk about climate, obviously, and research climate in your work. How does it come home with you when you're talking with your kids? I mean, I think about it based off of, you know, the things that we do. I'm someone, I study the Arctic. And so the Arctic is a place that's really far away from our, our normal life and our normal existence here that we have. But, you know, talking about the places that we love to go or the things that we really like to do. And even this past summer, as Emily was just referring to, related to the wildfires. Um, and again, we can't say one particular wildfire is climate change. But seeing the impact that this past summer had on us here in Colorado, where we couldn't go outside, not just because of the wildfire in itself, but also because of the smoke that was in the air and the health impacts that that um, that we were experiencing just because of what it was like being outside in our own backyards. Right. And so understanding that climate change and the impacts of climate change have have just such a large wide scope of the things that 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 happen. And Emily, what about for you? How does this work come home with you when you're talking with your kids? So when my daughter, um, Frida, learned about climate change, she's in third grade. Um, she came home and, and she knows I'm a scientist. And she said, is this real? And I said, yes. And then she started crying. And I said to her, that's the right reaction. Um, and I also realized in that moment that that really was a reasonable reaction um, for adults and for children. 
Uh, and then, you know, I assured her that I was going to work on it. And I think that that's, that's um, for kids, one of the most reassuring things you can say is that your mom is working on it, right? And so I, I hope that this campaign will give other moms um, both the knowledge and the courage to, to work on this issue. And Emily, you have two daughters. This summer, you and your girls and your husband were out backpacking. You all had to get out fast because the Cameron Peak fire started close to where you all were. Over many months, it grew to be the largest fire on record in Colorado. Your work focuses on air quality and wildfires. Can you share a bit about that experience and what it was like for your family to live through months of smoke? Um, well, running from the Cameron Peak fire was scary, and I hope to never do that again. And my kids, <laughs> my kids are not very excited about uh, hiking. They're very excited that it's ski season now. Um, <laughs> but it did force uh, us to talk a lot about um, fires and for my kids to understand also uh, smoke. And this summer was um, was an interesting time because I had a lot of friends and actually the media too, reaching out to me and saying, you know, what do you do with your kids when it's like this, right? And so it forced a lot of conversations around smoke and health impacts and all the decision making that needs to come into play as a parent to protect your kids when the air is unhealthy. And so I, I also realized that there's a lot of room for improved communication on both climate change and air quality. And you know, a thing that I have heard from a lot of particularly middle schoolers and teens that I've talked with about climate change is that they feel like sometimes adults in their lives aren't listening or that they're the only ones who care. Is part of a group like this connecting the intergenerational um, work to fight climate change, Melissa? Yeah, I think that's exactly part of our mission, right? Um, I think, you know, our, our focus, of course, is moms and, and parents even more broadly. But, you know, we have a number of resources that are available for moms and parents to have conversations with their kids and with their teens. And you don't have to understand all of the all of the science behind climate change to want to do something about it. And so I, I think it's really important for us to take kind of some of that angst and emotion that Emily was speaking about, Frida, um, and really turn that into action because there's lots of things that we can do. And, and I think if we can collectively come together, no matter what age or what group you may be in, I think that will really help us move forward um, and, and to get the, the action that we need to see. And Melissa, you're also the Assistant Dean for Diversity and Inclusion for the Walter Scott Jr. College of Engineering at CSU. How do you want that experience and expertise highlighted in the work of the Science Moms Group? That's a great question. I, I think, you know, the climate crisis is more than just an environmental issue. It impacts our health, our economy, uh, racial injustices, health injustices that are out there. And for me, it's really important for, for moms of color and communities of color to see that they have a role and responsibility to, to have an impact and to do something about climate change, because we know from research that climate change is disproportionately impacting communities of color. So if I can be a, a visible person that someone says, wow, she looks like me and she's doing something about it, then that's one of my, my top goals in being a part of this initiative. Before we go, I'd love for you both to answer this question just about how it's been helpful for you to connect with experiences of other climate science mom and to have each other through this. Emily, why don't you go first? Oh, my gosh. I actually tell or sometimes I text Melissa <laughs> telling her how much I appreciate having her with me on this this journey because it it's so personal um, and it's so important 
and it is hard to talk about science and your personal life at the same time. And so it's wonderful to have Melissa and this other group of science moms uh, along the way here. And then Melissa, how has it been for you? Yeah, it's been, um, it's been so exciting. And um, I, I mean, I'm so happy to have Emily. And again, like she said, texting each other or calling each other, but it's been really exciting. And also, you know, a little bit scary to put yourself out there in this space um, to be really vulnerable and to share so much of your personal life. But I think that's really where change will come from is for us to see the personal things that are impacted because of climate change. I want to thank you both for being with us. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Melissa Burt and Emily Fisher are climate scientists with the Department of Atmospheric Science at Colorado State University. They're part of Science Moms, a new climate education campaign aimed at parents who want to better understand the issue and solutions of human-caused climate change. Some foresters believe prescribed burns are key to improving forest health as climate change fuels more destructive fires. But the Colorado State Forest Service isn't allowed to do prescribed burns anymore after a deadly fire in 2012. CPR's Michael Elizabeth Sackis reports. At the end of a snowy logging trail on Gould Mountain, west of Rocky Mountain National Park, a clawed machine piles up hundreds of dead lodgepole pine. They're cut down and turned into two-by-fours to reduce wildfire fuel. John Twitchell is with the Colorado State Forest Service. He points to clearings in the landscape where loggers have harvested trees. They blend right in with the meadows. You can't tell what's a meadow and what isn't. If a fire comes ripping up this valley, it's going to have to stop for those openings. Logging is one way to remove excess fuel from forests that no longer see fire. Starting in the 1900s, local and national land managers started to suppress fire in areas that evolved with flames. Lodgepole ecologically is developed to burn. When we live here, you know, 100,000 acre fires are no longer acceptable. The other way to remove fuel is to bring that fire back. Prescribed burns require permits and specific weather conditions to be done safely. The National Park Service says it's one of the most important tools for forest health and for preventing wildfire destruction. When we talk prescribed fire, usually most people are thinking a broadcast burn. That would be a situation where we would burn this whole area. The Colorado State Forest Service does not do that anymore. In March 2012, the Colorado State Forest Service was managing a prescribed fire south of Conifer. The winds picked up on a hot and dry day, which started the Lower North Fork fire. It killed three people and destroyed nearly two dozen homes. Mike Lester is the Colorado State Forester. He says the event was traumatic for many, the agency included. A lot of really good people really felt like their life's work was tarnished in some way. And it was unfair because they applied the techniques that at that point in time we thought were the right ways to do it. An independent review of the fire found no individual at fault, but victims criticized the review and wanted change. A bill was passed, which ended the State Forest Service's authority to do prescribed burning. The agency's fire unit employees were moved to the Division of Fire Prevention and Control. Lester doesn't think that the Colorado State Forest Service needs that authority reinstated. We would be happy to assist, but as far as taking the lead role again, there's no point in that because DFPC does prescribe fire. 
But the division is burning a lot less. Permit data from the state shows that fire prevention and control burns about an eighth of the acreage each year that the Colorado State Forest Service once did. Mike Morgan is division director. He says drier conditions connected to climate change, like Colorado's persistent drought, makes burning challenging. And the more homes we get in the areas where we would typically consider using fire as a tool, the more risk or hazard there is associated with using fire as a tool to do that. But federal agencies like the U.S. Forest Service are still burning. Morgan says since the land they manage is further away from homes, it makes it easier for them to use fire as a tool. And that's why the state has turned to more manual thinning, like the logging project on Gould Mountain. But former Deputy State Forester Joseph Duda doesn't think that's enough. Duda, who retired last year, wants to see the Colorado State Forest Service's authority to burn reinstated. You've taken an important tool out of the toolbox when the tool is necessary you basically tied the hand behind their back. While Mike Morgan with Fire Prevention and Control cites climate change and a growing number of people and developments crowding into wildland areas as reasons to do less burning, Duda sees those as the reasons to do more. Clearly, we've had warmer and drier, more drastic conditions. The time now isn't to do less forestry, it's to do more forestry. Duda notes that Colorado's Forest Service is one of the only state forest services that can't do prescribed burns. That also means they're not allowed to burn piles of thin trees and brush for wildfire mitigation on private land. The state forest service is the forestry agency for private landowners. That's a significant ownership. There's six and a half million acres or so of private forest lands in Colorado. While the State Forest Service is blocked from doing prescribed fires, they haven't stopped showing their support for its use. Their latest forest action plan calls for more of it in Colorado, which at this point is all the agency can do. I'm Michael Elizabeth Sackis, CPR News. College students have been handed a big increase in tuition and fees in recent years, and it looks like that won't stop anytime soon in Colorado, even in a time of remote and hybrid learning. CPR's Paolo Scholceda found a lot of that money goes toward funding projects and amenities once supported by state dollars. As Metro State University Denver's student trustee, Alora Ward's job is to make sure student voices are heard when the Board of Trustees makes governing decisions for the university. Last fall, when the board met to vote on a tuition increase, Ward asked them a question. What are her dollars really paying for? We're not providing housing. We're not providing like a decent gym or like recreational facility. Like we still have to pay this much money for parking. We didn't have RTD passes at the time because we discontinued our contract because of COVID. And I was like, there are all of these things that we're not providing students, yet we're increasing their tuition to feel like a more traditional university. Ward, a senior studying political science and communication, says she approved of the tuition increase after the board promised to divert more funds towards financial aid and resources for struggling students. But the whole ordeal left her wondering why her and her peers are on the hook for these services. Tuition and fees pay for a wide range of services universities offer, like professor salaries, construction, health centers, and more. However, decades ago, the state of Colorado used to shoulder most of that burden. When you look at funding 20 years ago, about not quite, but almost 70% of the funding that universities got came from the state, and 30% came from tuition and fees. When you look at us today, that has flipped. That was George Middlemas, CFO of MSU. What he said is true across the state. 
A 2020 report from the Colorado Department of Higher Education found that, compared to other similarly sized colleges in different states, Colorado universities receive a collective 66% less state appropriations. Across the state, college students are footing large bills and paying costs that were once the state's responsibility. In Greeley, the University of Northern Colorado charges students a capital fee, which now costs about $468 per semester. Their CFO, Michelle Quinn, says a large chunk of that money will go towards funding around $260 million worth of maintenance on outdated campus buildings. Based upon the revenue in the state of Colorado, their ability to fund the facility deferred maintenance was volatile and we couldn't rely upon that. That fee has risen in recent years. Today, the capital fee is about 3% higher than it was in 2018. And that's not even mentioning the other student fees which pay for other services. Future generations of students will likely be paying these types of fees for years to come. At the University of Colorado Boulder, they already have been. A little less than 10 years ago, the student body voted to raise student fees by hundreds of dollars to fund a $63 million renovation of their rec center. At the time, it was described as being outdated and overcrowded. It's still being paid off. On top of tuition and other fees, students taking more than one class are required to pay about $107 per semester to help pay off construction bonds. Adding to the frustration is the inability to use the buildings due to the pandemic. For Isaiah Chavis, the student body president at CU, passing new fees that future classes will be responsible for is difficult. He says the things student fees fund are core to the college experience, but the burden to keep them functional shouldn't fall to his peers. I think that can be a conversation, but I also think what we're doing at that point is further pressuring our students to pay for the resources that I think should be inherent to the university experience. And so whether that comes from the university itself through their endowment, or whether that's coming from the state or the federal government, it needs to happen. Wherever the money comes from, it needs to come sooner rather than later. Remember what UNC's Michelle Quinn said earlier about deferred maintenance? As time goes on, those costs are going to get even higher. CU's University Memorial Center, a hub for student activity, needs about $106 million in renovation. Greg Allen, the student finance board chair, says someone gets trapped in the elevator of the building at least once a semester. There are larger issues that exist that aren't going to be addressed with, you know, just a $2 million project every couple of years. The money will be hard to find. With the CU system holding over $1.6 billion of outstanding debt, they're not in a position to take on additional large maintenance projects. I'm Paolo Shalsada, CPR News. Finally today, American music and classical music would be incomplete without understanding the contributions of spirituals. Consider the impact of Deep River, Go Down Moses, and Swing Low Sweet Chariot. This month, our colleagues at CPR Classical are beginning a year-long series they're calling Journey to Freedom, the Spirituals Radio Project, which is co-produced with M. Roger Holland II. The first utterance of sacred music by the enslaved community would have been on the slave ships when they sang or uttered moans and groans, but they had no real language, common language until they arrived on these shores, which at that time would have been called the New World. And it wasn't until they had a grasp of the English language that they would have started to form their own songs. 
Holland is an assistant professor of African-American music and theology at the University of Denver's Lamont School of Music and director of DU's Spiritual Project Choir. On Journey to Freedom, he'll offer his commentary in exploring the historical origins and cultural relevance of this music. I can fully fathom that one of the first things they would have talked about with this common tongue is the situation in which they found themselves. Why are we here? How did slavery begin? How did these Africans find themselves? Why is this even going on? Why is this a conversation? The series kicks off with Lord, How Come Me Here, which Holland says is a song of deep mourning and a prayer for relief. Here's a 1990 Carnegie Hall performance by soprano Kathleen Battle. Soprano Kathleen Battle performing Lord How Come Me Here. The song is the first of many that'll be featured in the new series from CPR Classical, Journey to Freedom, the Spirituals Radio Project, which begins this month. And that's Colorado Matters, made possible every day by Carl Bielek, Ali Butner, Andrea Dukakis, Michelle Fulcher, Matt Hers, Michael Hughes, Carla Jimenez, Pedro Lumbrano, Alexandra McMahon, Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey, Ryan Warner, and I'm Avery Lill with special thanks to Michael Elizabeth Sackis. This is CPR News.